Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the We Podcast, and I'm your host, Sarah Menares. I believe that we all need a space to speak our authentic truth, as well as a space to hear the truths of real and vulnerable people so that we can better understand that we are not alone. Hearing the experiences of others encourages us to step into the light in our own lives. It is through owning our stories and learning to speak our truth that we are able to grow and rise above the challenges we face and step into the full power of all we were created to be. You will hear many topics discussed in this space with people from all over the world. We hope that you feel welcomed into a community of growth and that this space will invite you to uncover the absolute greatness that is already inside of you. Oh, and don't forget, check out all the We Podcast episodes as well as the We Spot blog over at thewespot.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hey there, it's me. You're listening to episode number 88. We have the power to insight change, action, contribution, and committing to the fight. In this episode, I get to talk with Janae Matthews. After receiving the Betcher Scholarship in 2016, Janae chose to attend Colorado State University. She is now going into her fifth year studying biomedical engineering and electrical engineering with a minor in ethnic studies. She started to get involved with the issues surrounding students of color on campus during her second year of college when they started to see an increase in bias-related incidents. Most of it was informal, holding demonstrations and discussions to talk about how the incidents affected them. Since then, she's also joined the President's Multicultural Student Advisory Committee to take the conversation directly to administration. In fall 2019, following a peak of bias incidents on campus, her and a few others led a demonstration of over 400 students to make it clear that enough was enough. They followed up after six months of no progress with an 11-page document of demands to their administration for change. Outside of CSU, with the current issues we're seeing in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, she spent some time in downtown Denver in Aurora protesting and speaking out about the injustices black, indigenous, and people of color experience every day, in addition to what needs to change to stop police brutality. Janae is also working on a project with her brother based on educating our peers and communities. Janae is a wealth of knowledge and information, and there were so many insightful moments for me throughout this entire interview. This is a fight for life and death, and we have to be in it for the long run. Thank you, Janae, for all you're doing in this fight and for sharing your heart and insights with us. We are definitely better for it. I can't wait for you all to listen to this interview and just get so much knowledge from it. So here we go. Here is my interview with Janae. Welcome to this episode of the We Podcast. I am super excited to have the amazing Janae Matthews here with me today. I know uh, that we are going to have a really important and beautiful conversation that I think many, many people need to hear and hopefully will learn from and also feel supported through. So thank you so much, Janae, for being here, for agreeing to come on and have a conversation with me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I didn't meet you, but I saw you at a protest in Denver. You were one of the main, it seemed like one of the main speakers in that protest. That was my first downtown Denver protest experience, which was very awesome and also hard in a lot of ways. I feel like it's a beautiful combination of lots of different feelings and emotions and really important. So 
thank you for that. And when I saw you, I was like, I need to have a conversation with her. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that's always the best way to start. Um, And honestly, for me, you know, being downtown in Denver was probably the first time I really spoke up that loudly, I'll say. Um, I've been involved in a lot of different spaces, but this was just one of those times when you know, doing research or sitting on a computer screen or even just like having the conversations with my friends, it just didn't feel like enough. And so hitting the streets and just being a part of that movement and that momentum was really important for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like, and maybe this is a good area to dive in, that you're doing a lot of speaking up in different areas. And it's interesting because I'd like to know maybe how that's changed just in the last, because I feel like in, in the past three months and, or maybe four months, even I, I'm not good with time right now being quarantined, you know, (laughs) it's become so much more obvious or there's just been so much more awareness. I think, especially for, for me, I can say for myself than I had before. And so it seems like you've been speaking up, especially on the CSU campus where you go to school for a while now, but also how that's kind of changed more in, in recent moments. Yeah. <laughs> so from like a, a personal perspective, I actually, to this day, I hate public speaking, which a lot of people are like, I would have no idea. And there. I've gotten way more used to it. I think especially at CSU, I'm going into my fifth year this this upcoming fall. And so I've seen it, you know, and we've seen it happen. We've seen some of these same issues happening that are usually classified as incidents of bias because they don't classify as hate crimes by federal law. And so they're this like, they don't meet a certain threshold. And so we know that they're based in, in race hate. And we know that they're based in discrimination and prejudice. And we're not seeing actions to support students of color on campus. And so as I've gotten a little bit older and the more time I spend at CSU, I don't feel willing to stay quiet about it. And a lot of that comes from becoming an upperclassman and recognizing that the people who I looked up to prior to this point have now, you know, they've passed that torch and they've given me the tools that I need to continue that fight and just really making sure that we're not letting people or the administration slide on some of these issues because we know that CSU isn't really unique with these situations. It's just that a lot of times it's not publicly acknowledged. And even at CSU, every incident isn't publicly acknowledged. And so for me, like you said, in the last four months, I think that's actually a pretty accurate timeline for myself. Maybe we'll say like this year in particular, 2020, it's just been a search for different platforms where I can use my voice effectively because I'm now accepting the fact that people listen when I speak. And so that started with conversations with the president of CSU, Joyce McConnell, um, and members of the top administration at CSU who I've gotten to know in the past few years and just using that platform and that connection. That has turned into also being able to communicate with students and work with people who are my close friends and making sure that they have a voice and actually making sure that students feel heard as well. And then this past March, I was able to give a a TED talk at our TEDx series that we do on campus every year. And so that was super surreal, but also like an important platform of making sure that what we go through at CSU is both vocalized for our community at large and also in a way that we can spread that message to a larger community. And then I think for me, it's just been that growth, you know, just like continuously speaking out and continuously recognizing that I can share these frustrations because I know that there are other people who are going through them as well and that they continue to do that and that the fight that we're in right now is multifaceted. And so that I think is what really fueled me going from, you know, speaking against blackface incidents and our history with racist incidents at CSU and just seeing that transform and manifest into the energy that I needed to also speak out against police brutality and uh, larger issues that are, are affecting the black community outside of that college bubble. And so that really hit in May and June um, up to now of just making sure whether again it's online or actually in person at the protests or just having conversations that people are really actually hearing and that we're using those different platforms and that we're also just just sharing our experiences and our thoughts because that's what gets people to listen. So before we dive too deep in, and I, I realize I already kind of dove in, <laughs> I, I got a little ahead of myself. <laughs> Can you just tell us a little bit about you, about your background and, and just who you are? 
So I grew up in Aurora, Colorado, so born and raised in Colorado. I've been here my whole life and chose to attend CSU. Um, I'm pursuing a dual degree in biomedical engineering and electrical engineering and also a minor in ethnic studies. Going into my fifth year this upcoming fall, hopefully if everything goes well, I'll be done next December in December 2021. And I'm, I'm involved in all kinds of things, honestly, in, in terms of like campus involvement, community involvement. I think that, so the three that have become the most important to me are uh, my membership in Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, National Society of Black Engineers, and then also on campus, I serve as a liaison for the President's Multicultural Student Advisory Committee, PEMSAC for short. Those are the areas that have both spoken to my identity as a Black woman, as a Black student, as a Black engineer, and have allowed me to really continue my education in a STEM field and continue to grow and affirm my identity specifically from the racial perspective. After college, what is it you kind of want to go into? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> it's It changes pretty much every year that I go further into this program, but right now I'm looking at pursuing public health and possibly focusing in global health and really just working to bring technological medical solutions to communities that don't have the same level of access, whether that's communities within the U.S. that don't have the same socioeconomic status or more broadly on a global scale, looking outside of the Western countries and working with areas that genuinely need support and don't always have it. So I think that's where I want to go. And, you know, I have a, a really intense passion for just bridging the gap between the, the access gap, I guess, between the Western world and the rest of the world as it's been kind of painted for us. How long have you been really engaged in activism? What it sounds like maybe, you know, you saying you don't really like public speaking. Have you been kind of thrown into it and like, okay, this is my role. This is what I, I guess I'm going to do. Or is it something you've wanted to do? What does that look like for you? I feel like I was more thrown into it, but I guess it's kind of a, a mixture where I never really saw myself being that like frontline activist when I was younger or even when I got to college. But when I started speaking up and when I started having these conversations with my mentors and my friends in, in college, I realized that we have that power to incite change as even a group of students, a small group of students at the time. And we just, we were motivated. And so that for me was kind of where it started. I, I can't really pinpoint like the exact moment. And I think what activism has looked like has transformed for me um, and is still continuing to transform where even before I was that super vocal person or the person who's willing to stand up in front of thousands of people, I was more into just like doing research on a personal level because I knew that there was a large void in what I had been taught about American history and what was the full story, specifically as a Black American and knowing that there's a certain level of history about my ancestral roots that I'll never know. And so I would say my first act of activism was just actually educating myself and then wanting to take that knowledge and educate others. And I think from there, it just kind of spread as I began to understand the different systems and the different ways that oppression shows up. And that has just ballooned out into, you know, now we're seeing a time when everyone has a role and everyone has a way to speak up. And for me, I just felt like being at the protest, being downtown, it felt right. And it felt like something that was needed at the time. And so I just plugged myself in there and did what I could in that setting. And, you know, now as it continues to evolve, and especially as I kind of weigh what it looks like to balance the, the activism work in college and what we're doing at CSU and the activism work on a broader scale, because both are still really necessary. I am strongly confident <laughs> that it's going to transform again. And so I'll have to find that that balance and that new role of activism for myself. I think important awareness, you know, I'm going to speak for a lot of people listening who, who will come and listen to this podcast. I think knowing my audience are people who want to get involved. They want to be activists. They want to help. They want to, you know, become a part of or lift up those who are being oppressed and learn more about systemic racism and everything that's happening. I think a lot of people feel like, well, I have to go to protests or I have to do these huge things in order to make a difference. 
I think you just really spoke to the levels of activism and make a difference in, in so many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think being in a pandemic really put that in perspective because people who chose to show up to protest, they did that. I would never have ridiculed anyone for showing up or for choosing not to because for me, it didn't feel like as much of a choice, as much of an obligation, but for others, it was a conscious decision. Even for myself, it was a conscious decision to remove myself from a safe quarantine setting and to go and expose myself around thousands of people, right? And we're in a, we're in a pandemic and we know what that means. And especially early on, there was that thought of like, well, this could be another outbreak. We're seeing all these protests and, the, and you know, are people wearing masks? And there's a million questions. And it's a very real situation for people to find themselves thinking like, if I don't show up, you know, am I a fraud or is there another way I can get involved is kind of a, a positive spin on that. The answer for me is always going to be yes. One of my closest friends is constantly reminding me, like, I'm that frontline protester. I hit the streets. That's my thing. And she's like, it's just not for me. She prefers taking an educational standpoint, having one-on-one -on -one conversations. And in my mind, that's almost more valuable because the private conversations that aren't televised, they're not making the nightly news, the private conversations are sometimes the ones that are going to make most difference because those are one-on-one -on -one or in a small group of people who you may know and trust with within your, your family, within your friend group. You can have an immense difference in that setting the same way that those of us who took on the role of leading uh, marches and protests across you know, the country and across the world, the way that we have chosen to, to be loud and to disrupt normal life. We're all inserting ourselves where we see fit. And so it's, it's never like a right and wrong way to be an activist. I think it's just about finding what works for you. And the one thing that I'll add is I won't say like what's comfortable for you because I think that's a little bit of a misconception because a lot of this work is done in a space of discomfort. A lot of change requires sacrifice and it doesn't have to be some major sacrifice. It could be something as simple as making the decision to leave a safe quarantine setting. That's a sacrifice. That's something that is disrupting the norm that we had established as this like safe bubble in order to seek the change that we know is necessary. And so we have to kind of recognize that discomfort is okay. And a lot of times it is necessary if we want to actually pursue that role in activism and that growth on a personal level and on a societal level. You just said um, seeking the change that we know is necessary. And so I would like to be really direct about that. And so I would love to know from your perspective, what is that change that you feel is, is necessary? I would say on the highest level, we keep calling for defunding of police. And I absolutely stand by that. I personally think that the police and law enforcement as we know it right now needs to be completely abolished and rebuilt. Call, when we call for defunding, it's about reallocations of funding to go towards community efforts that really will build up everyone in our community that will provide alternative mentoring and general support. I always think of mental health because that's something that's so mm -hmm. underfunded and is often a, a problem when it comes to police response. And so that's an area that if we can really value mental health instead of cr criminalizing it, then we can actually start to see some changes in our society as well on that front. So for me, that's, that's kind of the most forefront one because we're seeing police brutality and right now we're seeing abuse of police power, not just in terms of one-on-one -on -one interactions, but we're seeing what's happening in Portland with federal law enforcement being brought in, or even more recently with the last Elijah McClain protest in Aurora, where a man drove his car through a crowd of protesters and essentially was brought down in such a peaceful and calm way that makes me and people who look like me wonder, why is it so hard for me to be detained without my life being endangered if you're able to do it for someone who puts so many other lives in danger? I think it's a, that for me is a really clear example of mm -hmm. all we're asking for is when we talk about an end to police brutality is that whether or not someone is guilty 
should not mean they deserve to die in a police encounter. That shouldn't be a fact. Our justice system should be designed in a way that if we really want to bring justice to the, the perpetrator and the victims, people get to live to actually see that day. And so I think that's another piece of change is just actually understanding what justice means and not making it retaliatory or punitive, but actually restorative justice is usually what I think about. And the last thing in terms of change, and this is more of a long-term thing, for me, it's always about equity and create creating equitable terms for the Black community. Because regardless of what we want to say, it's now very clear to the vast majority of our society that we're not living in a post-racial world and that Black folks and Brown folks are substantially unsupported in education, in housing, in employment, in healthcare. It's not just encounters with law enforcement. It really does branch into every aspect of our lives. And so if we're really seeking long-term change and we're seeking a world where everyone who is in this country is valued in the same way, then we need to actually reconcile the history of the treatment of Black and Brown folks going all the way back to the indigenous folks, going back to transatlantic slave trade, attempted multiple groups of people that is an honest part of our history and it's not painted that way. So it's hard to understand. We have to, we, we have to change all of that, you know, and it's hard to throw that at people because it's like, oh, like that's, that's a lot and that's big picture. And then it comes back to like, what can we do right now? What small steps can we take? And, you know, for me, that small step of change is having the conversation with someone who has a different view than you or whose view you know may be detrimental to a black or brown person, whether or not you are that black or brown person. I feel like we could just talk for hours about, you know, defunding the police. And <laughs> I mean, each one of those topics, you know, when you said mental health, I really strongly believe that police reform and mental health reform go hand in hand. I'm probably a little biased because I am a therapist. I see all of the holes and the major issues within our mental health system and how unequal it is. And, and really, you know, people who are most needing it have the least access to it. You know, using police to intervene in mental health or different situations, they just absolutely should not be intervening in. It's such an issue. But I won't go down that. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on that. But I, I totally hear you. I hear you in all of the things you're laying out before us in how do we intervene in those ways. You said a little bit ago, we have the power to incite change. And I think that that is so important to focus on because it can feel, and I'm sure and this is something that has been brought up over and over. I am a privileged white person who has been fully brought in, not fully. I still have tons to learn, which I know we talked about before we started recording, but I have such a bigger awareness in the past four months than I have my whole life, essentially. In those four months, I'm like, this feels so overwhelming. And so I can only imagine how you feel having dealt with this, you know, your whole life. And so what would you say to that? I mean, what would you say to the feeling of overwhelm or how we can kind of approach that or look at that? The first thing I would say is a piece of advice that I've been given multiple times in the last four months. And that's just that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think that is, it's a universal thing where my experience growing up, like, yes, I grew up black and we all have these points as black and brown folks, but uh, speaking from a black person's perspective, we have these points when we start to realize that our skin color means something different. And for me, I didn't really fully understand that until late high school or when I really started to explore my identity in college. It is a lifetime experience, but for me, it's really been in the last four and a half years that all of this has really set in, sat with me in a way that I was like, I, I can't just accept this. And so to that piece, I also like my advice that we all are entering from different spots 
from different starting points, whether that's because you grew up in a different socioeconomic standpoint that gives you more privilege over others, which is something that I can say for myself that while I do have a racially based oppression, that my socioeconomic status was one of privilege, whether you're entering from that perspective, or maybe it's something more of a language barrier or a cultural barrier, like we all have different experiences that have led us to this point. The key is to recognize when your resistance is no longer productive. So if you're hearing something and you're pushing back, like, no, that can't be the case. It's for me, the basis of All Lives Matter, because that's in response, that's in retaliation to Black Lives Matter. And when people say it, they're saying, well, it's not just Black lives that matter. And the response is always that we never said that. You know, we were always, always going to say that Black lives matter as well. And so if you find yourself in that situation where you're pushing back against something, I think this is one of those moments when you, we all need to take a point and just pivot and just try to understand why that pushback is there because that's where the understanding happens. And then, of course, right now between the pandemic and reconciling the history of, of racism and police brutality in this country, mental health does matter. And so self-care also matters. When I say self-care, I can't give you like the three top practices that I use because it's that's a, a journey in and of itself for me. Well, as an individual and as a community, we have ways to support ourselves and each other and to be there for each other and know that th this is not an individual fight. This is not something that's going to be solved by one person. And so we have to recognize when we're taking on too much of a burden and I'm kind of talking to myself right now as well. Recognizing when we're taking on too much or unnecessarily taking on a burden that can be shared with others, having that conversation instead of keeping it bottled up, asking the question if you're afraid to ask it because you know you'll regret it later. Taking those small steps and then also knowing when you just need to shut it off. There are days I don't watch the news. There are days I check out of social media. I know that that's the only way that I'll give myself a chance to recover. Those are kind of the areas that it's like we've gotten a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue, a lot of information thrown at us in these last four months, especially for folks who haven't engaged in these kind of conversations before. And so we have to remember how to take care of our ourselves with that and not just check out and not just run from it because again that discomfort is where the growth will most likely come from balance is still key to all of that so let's dive in to the black lives matter movement because i know that that is something important and and something that you're passionate about you want to dive into your thoughts on that with us to start, I had to kind of think about like, where did, where did it start? Where did the Black Lives Matter movement really start? And then I realized it's eight years in the making. We're seeing it at a peak right now. We usually see it at a peak every time another Black person is killed and it goes viral. The work that the organization that actually like coined that term, the work that they've been doing, it's almost a decade old. In all honesty, that's just under the term Black Lives Matter because this is a transformation of previous fights. This is a direct transformation of the civil rights movement where we like to assume or were taught a lot of times that the 60s solved everything. We know and we're seeing now that we can use the same language. We could play some of the same speeches from 1960 and they would apply today. And so Black Lives Matter is a transformation of that. On top of that, I think because of the digital age, because of the pandemic, and we're seeing how hashtags go viral and how they're used in that manner, one of the biggest pushbacks right now is, is that Black Lives Matter is not a trend, it's a statement. It's a standalone sentence grammatically, where when I say Black Lives Matter, I don't need to elaborate. I don't need to add anything onto that because it is a standalone. But we're seeing it used and honestly abused in ways right now where people are using it for self-gratification. They're using it to say they've done their part. They're using it to kind of prove that, you know, they're for the cause or whatever. And so for me, I always have to go past social media. And this is where for me, like being on the ground is important because I need action behind words. I need action behind pictures and social media can only give you so much of that. And so that's where I, I always encourage people, if you truly believe in the message that Black Lives Matter, you will find a way to get beyond the hashtag. You will find a way to get beyond that Blackout Tuesday, uh, Black Square box post. And you'll really find different ways to continuously engage because what we've gone through in the last four months, like you said, it's not new for most of us. We've seen this before. If you ask many Black people at this point, we can name, we can list the Black lives that we're fighting for and it doesn't just stop with the folks that have already been killed because it, it continues into myself my brothers my family 
my friends because this isn't just about stopping acts or, or finding justice for those who have already been killed, although that is still a drive. It is also about preventing it from ever happening again. Mm-hmm. It is about this notion that I don't ever want to have to be scrolling through my, my timeline, my newsfeed, and see another viral video of a Black man dying. Because when I see that video, and I only watched the video of George Floyd a couple times because I saw my dad. I saw my uncles and cousins. I don't just see some random, you know, person. It's it's very much internalized. And so when we talk about Black Lives Matter, like this isn't just summer 2020 or pandemic, you know, activity. This is literally a fight for life or death for some of us. And so mm-hmm. for, for folks who are, are just now being exposed to that, who are, are just now kind of dipping their toe in it, I think it's important to just lean into that and just understand that this is not something that's going to be solved overnight. It's not going to go away overnight. I always look for the folks who are in it for the long run, the folks who are looking for ways that they can bring the conversation to their communities, looking for ways that they can engage themselves, whether that's doing their own programming like you're doing right now, like having the conversation uh, on podcasts and, and documenting it in a more real way that's hitting every platform in a way that's going to last beyond just one protest or one month of protests or however long these last because people will start to look for that normalcy again. People are going to start to just want to go back to what's comfortable and normal and that's when I'll really be looking for the folks who are in this and committed to the change, who are actively contributing to that change by continuing this conversation and not letting it die out. We're continuing to say the names Breonna Taylor and Elijah McLean and George Floyd and every other name that we can possibly think of right now because there still is not justice for their families and for them. Thank you for that. Oh, I have to take a deep breath. (laughs) Uh, Just what you said, you know, so I've been having a lot of conversations with a lot of different people about Black Lives Matter. And I think what it truly is and what it was truly created to be versus what people are spinning it to be now. And it it really, it's upsetting to see how people are making it a political issue rather than a human issue. And I think when you just said, you know, it's a fight for life or death, that is a human issue. That is not who you're voting for or where you stand on, you know, the political spectrum. It's it's about humans. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest frustrations is that people feel this need to automatically assign someone's views to one, one party or the other. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, I'm also thinking about, like, masks right now and how that's become a political thing as well and it's like genuinely I mean this when I say it I want to live and I want to do my part to make sure that others can as well and when I say that statement I'm talking about the pandemic I'm talking about black lives neither of those in my mind are political statements they are both they're public health issues and like you said they're human issues you know we call the civil rights movement we it's been given that name but in all honesty every time that black people have spoken up have resisted have fought back. It's not just about civil rights. It's not just about getting one or two laws passed. It's about having the rights that we have been told we can get as human beings. It's a human rights issue. It's something that we we conceptualize when we look at it internationally, but for whatever reason, when it comes back locally, all of a sudden it's political. And I, I don't understand it personally. And it is, it's really frustrating. And so that's an area where I don't even know how to engage in that conversation because it's like, oh, well, the liberals think this and the conservatives think this. And I'm like, where did that come from? You know, mm-hmm. where, where did we where did we start to assign those views? Because it shouldn't be about your political affiliation. If you care about people mm-hmm. and if you care about the, the right to life, if you want to have it tied to rights and laws and things like that. But at the end of the day, for me, if you if you see that something is wrong and that you have an opportunity to do something about it, you should. And I don't know if that's just because of the way I was raised or if that's that's just always been like a fundamental truth for me. So mm-hmm. it's never political. It's and it shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. A fundamental truth. I think that's the thing is getting back to that fundamental truth. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of in our history, people who probably have felt that to their core are the people who have tended maybe to stay more quiet because the people who don't feel that can be really loud. Realizing that we need to be speaking up. And yeah, I just did a post yesterday on my page because I read 
read the book by um, Patrice Con Colors, who's one of the founders mm-hmm. of the Black Lives mm-hmm. Movement, and just said, whatever you think you know about this, don't even have a conversation about it until you go to the source of the development of this and know that first, because so many people are having so many conversations about things they think they know, but they have not gone to the source to get that information. Yeah. I mean, and this is where, like, I think I was born in the wrong generation. I hate social media. It's a powerful tool, but that share button is so dangerous because most of the time people aren't reading the articles. And like, I have done that before. I try not to, but you read the headline. Mm-hmm. You read the title and you say, oh, like, I agree with that title. So I'm going to share this. And if you actually take the time to read it, you might realize, okay, like that may not be exactly the message I want to send. Or are you actually doing research behind that before you share it? Are you sharing it without like actually adding your thoughts to the conversation? Like those kinds of things don't make sense to me. So I, I, I definitely agree that if you come across something, you should always be willing to take the time to just understand it. And to just do your due diligence, to do that background research, to read a little bit further, to fact check yourself before you you post it or you say it or you send that out in whatever way. That self-education piece is powerful. Yeah, yeah. and I, I love to read. Two engineering programs at once doesn't exactly give me a ton of time to read. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's something that like my ethnic studies minor, that has given me the opportunity to continue just like reading articles and reading books that, that make me think. But also like this summer for me, like seeing all these book lists come out and I'm like, oh, like I got to read every book on that list. And I'm like, okay, like some of these are repetitive, honestly. And some of these are, are things that I already know. And so then it becomes like, what other source of knowledge, of wisdom, of conversation can I have either through a book or I'm a documentary nerd through and through, even if it is like a historical fiction movie, how are we actually taking advantage of the platforms that we have to just keep learning? I think when we hear self-education, everyone's like, oh, I need to go read how to be anti-racist or one of the other 10 titles we've been given right now. And it's like, yes, you can. And if you hate reading, you're probably not going to absorb that information that way. Mm-hmm. Find something that works for you that will actually speak to you. If that's watching a Netflix series, a documentary, if that's actually sitting down and having a conversation or watching one of the 10 different sources of, of news and dialogues that they have on those, be willing to be critical about it if you're going to do it, but also just use what works for you to educate yourself and to continue to educate people around you as well. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the next, for sure. All right. So something I want to make sure we talk about during our time today is Elijah McCain. And I know you had said that that's something you want to make sure that we cover. So do you want to dive into that? Yeah. So Elijah McClain is a name that I I wish I had known before May, but I, you know, I didn't. I heard his mother speak at one of those Denver protests and it just like, it struck me because I was like, that's my hometown. That's, it's, it's where I grew up. Like I own that I'm from Aurora and she got out there and she's like, it's great that you are out here now fighting for George Floyd, but where were you a year ago? saying my son's name. And that has just stuck with me so deeply that it's like, what would it mean for us to really show up the way we are now in the aftermath of George Floyd, now with the momentum for Elijah McClain, for Breonna Taylor, for other names that we're now learning and we're now learning their stories months after or almost a year after they happened. What would it mean if we actually showed up every time? If we actually had the energy, the resources, the power to do that every time? Even beyond that, how did we as Colorado not feel this level of anger a year ago? Mm-hmm. And why did it take that long? So that's kind of the first thought that it's just like, why, like, what does it take to light that fire under people? and especially in a community like like Denver and Aurora that are always kind of held up for being these multicultural and safe cities and things like that. And it's like, now we're starting to see with Aurora PD where there's a lot of issues, a lot. And within even the last year or two, they've had some major changes in their staffing and things like that. But we're still seeing just over and over again, like these, these different incidents come to light. And, you know, we're having this conversation now that should have been had before, that should have already have happened. And even beyond the police department we're seeing Kaufman and city council leaders all the way up to the state level where they assured this family a year ago that they would actually look into the case and that they would find justice for them and we haven't seen that we haven't seen anything close to that until we start screaming and disrupting again and now 
it's a top issue again. And so that's kind of the first point for me is just seeing the different ways that this has been mishandled and mistreated and the way that this family has been exploited and traumatized over and over again for political purposes without ever actually getting what they needed to find justice and knowing that there is a chance that they may not ever. And that's one of the most heartbreaking pieces of it, one of the most infuriating pieces of it, and one of the most motivating. As we know Elijah McClain, as we've learned his story of being this just like intensely sweet human who was just different, who had a different personality, who had anemia and so he wore a ski mask when he went out at night and how someone who didn't even feel threatened still felt the need to call the cops on just learning the details of of his story in life and how he died learning the names of the people who were involved in his death the actions that they took the policies that surround all of that that keep them from facing any sort of punishment like all of that ties into what we consider justice that's that's what this fight is about and it's it's good to see Aurora finally getting loud. And we're also starting to unfortunately see true colors of this city where people driving through crowds of protesters. And I know I mentioned that before, but that's, it's just ridiculous beyond anything else. It's ridiculous. And so we're seeing how much a mother who's already grieving, who still has other children to care for, has now had to go through simply to make sure her son did not fall in, fall through the cracks into the shadows. I hope that others beg this question that it begs for me of how many did we miss? Because there are others. And it's an unfortunate truth. And so for me, it's never just about saying, saying a name when we're chanting and marching. It's never just about having a few protests. It's about that accountability. It's about the reform. It's about holding people accountable and rebalancing systems of power so that they're not being abused, whether that's at a political level in terms of policy, if it's legislation, if it's directly reforming our police departments, our law enforcement. I, I don't think it's a either or. I think it's a both and. There needs to be changes because what happened to Elijah should never happen again. And I think that's kind of the piece for me that will always like fuel this fight is not only am I going to continue speaking up until we see the justice that the McLean family needs, but also to know that the changes that we're seeking will protect our other Black men and women and children from having to find themselves in that same situation. So I always tell people, you know, say his name, and know the story and fight for that story mm -hmm. because that's the very least that we can do and the very least that we absolutely should be doing right now. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking, especially everything surrounding his death. So I want to know one thing you referred to is, is the policies, knowing the policies that need to change. And so I think I don't, I mean, I know some about that. I know some about uh, some of the laws that are in place, but I I'd love to hear from you, you know, what are those policies? What are the things that do need to change? When we say defund the police or within the rules or the laws protecting the police, what is that exactly? The first one, and we've seen it happen already pretty widespread, but completely banning and even criminalizing the use of carotid joke holds. It was used on Elijah McClain as well, although it is not the last thing that happened to him before he died. Obviously, we saw it with, with George Floyd. We've seen it before. And so we, we know that the, the chokehold in particular was something that was taught during the 80s and 90s during the war on drugs, which was also a racialized policy because people who were usually high were stronger and they weren't as responsive to things like tasers. And so that's when they introduced it. But even in practice back then, there is an extremely fine line between someone passing out and completely losing oxygen to their brain. At this point, there have to be other mechanisms for taking people down, suspects down, without cutting off oxygen to their brain. It's not on us as the people to give them those answers necessarily, but it is on law enforcement, on police officers to have other mechanisms, non-lethal mechanisms to do an individual. And I think that's kind of the foundation of, of most of the policy change that I would personally advocate for is just moving away from lethal response. I understand the whole police put their lives in danger and I'm never going to question that, especially as someone who has never been in that kind of situation. That said, I have a really hard time when someone's unarmed, when someone's running away, when someone's already on the ground in cuffs. I have a hard time understanding how that calls for a lethal use of force. 
And so from a policy perspective within law enforcement at the very basic level, that has to change is what does the lethal versus non-lethal use of force look like? And why are, are, why are police so trigger happy? And I know that's a divisive statement, but I can also tell you that I have been in the car that when we got pulled over for speeding with no other indications of suspicion, we watched the police officer's hand with three black women in the car. Police officer's hand almost never left the gun on his side for simply speeding. And so why is that the inclination? I think that question of lethal force has to be addressed first and foremost. And for me, it's hard to parse out one policy from another, especially knowing that police departments versus uh, city police versus county police, even versus campus police, all have different jurisdictions and they overlap and they have different practices. It's hard to understand all of it. I personally think that we, we're we living in a society that's over-policed and it goes back to what we were saying about the response to mental health mental health crises. I, I don't believe that police should be involved in those calls at all unless there is a direct and immediate like lethal threat. I, I think that there are other ways, again, to subdue people, to to de-escalate, and I don't think that they are used enough. I don't think that they're even explored enough as a, as a normal practice for law enforcement. And it's also hard for me to like parse all of this out because like my fundamental belief is that we just need to abolish police. And that is an extremely hard conversation to have, especially because I don't have all of the facts to back it like right at this moment. You know, for me, one or two policy changes just won't be enough because we've seen policy change happen before. You know, I think of a Brianna Taylor in particular, because in the aftermath of her death, they passed a law in Kentucky, actually in Louisville to be, or Louisville to be specific, they passed a law in her name that banned the use of no-knock warrants, but they have yet to directly charge or hold accountable the majority of the officers involved in that situation. We saw policy change and there's still a lack of justice. I know I just like went around your question a little bit there no, at the end, okay. but yeah, yeah, just like the reality that like even policy change may not be enough to, to keep my family safe, to keep myself safe. And that, like I said, at this point, we need to completely just do it over. You know, I think the last thing that like, I don't think a lot of people realize, I didn't really understand this until about a year ago. Police and law enforcement in the United States has its origins in slave catching. They became the sheriffs that we know and that transformed into law enforcement systems as we know them. That's not to say they operate the exact same way, obviously. If you think about the way that we like to acknowledge our history and you know that the whole saying of like, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. We have to acknowledge that there will always be roots of old generations that are carried through. And so if we're not willing to just scrap it and start over and build something that is for and by the people to support our communities, I think we'll end up with the same power imbalance and abuse of that power. We'll end up with the same bias that leaves black and brown bodies um, or just other marginalized identities in general leaves them more at risk. And so, you know, for me, that's why the only real solution is just start over and figure out what law enforcement needs to meet, what, what it means in this country, what justice means, and the best means to actually achieve that, whether or not that involves uniformed officers carrying weapons and responding the way they do, because we're seeing that that system's not working. So I'd love for you to address the people. I mean, I'm all for police reform. I don't know, I guess I don't know exactly what a like abolishing the police totally means it's something that I need to learn more about. And so maybe that's something that you can talk to us about. Like, what does that mean exactly to you with abolishing the police? To me, it goes back to the conversation that we're already having about defunding the police, where it's about using the resources that are already allocated to police departments who are given too many responsibilities and dispersing those to other community programs to respond in appropriate ways. So again, using the example of mental health, having people who are trained to directly respond to mental health crises that doesn't involve pulling a weapon, again, a lethal weapon to subdue someone, but can use other forms of de-escalation, especially in nonviolent situations, avoiding any use of lethal force, but also looking at what it means to actually prevent crime. Because in my opinion, police are called after crimes are committed. And so it's reactive. Mm -hmm. And if we're really trying to be proactive in our society about crime, 
crime prevention. We'll be addressing things like poverty. We'll be addressing um, some of the issues, again, around education, where if people have access to community programming and to community support that is well-funded and well-established, they can stay out of dangerous situations. They can find paths, they have the resources to get out of cycles of poverty and to actually support themselves in their families without being criminalized, without being sucked into other systems like drug use, which again is a health crisis, not a criminal issue. So if we're able to essentially just disperse the responsibilities of police officers mm -hmm. and just actually use our community to support our community, I think we would start to see some of that, you know, the, the drops in crime rates and just actually see the way that we can build up communities, especially those that are majority uh, um, black and brown people, because that's where the, the need is the greatest. They're, those communities are by and large the most over-policed. They're the ones that are that tend to live in the most impoverished settings. And it's not to say they're the only ones, but again, because of the history of segregation and redlining, we see that the, the pockets of, of poverty and oppression in this country still very much reflect racial barriers. Mm -hmm. And so we can't just address one issue. And I think that's the part that I, I struggle to kind of communicate is that it's never just about police reform or abolishment or uh, abolition. It's about addressing the issues that feed into crime. It's yeah. about giving people other opportunities. And so when we talk about reforming or abolishing police, it's, it's also about community building simultaneously. So it's one and the other. It's that ebb and flow to create a more balanced and more equitable society for everyone. Beautifully said. <laughs> thank you for, yeah, thank you for explaining that because I think there's a lot of reactive opinions to that, that people, another thing, they automatically think they know all, well, you just mean that you want no police at all and it's going to be pure chaos. And I mean, I hear that from people a lot. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. Our system is so reactive, and I see that a lot in mental health. I think what I hear you really saying is getting to the root of the problem rather than, you know, just reacting after something has already happened. Exactly. And honestly, like, that's, that's the mentality I take with just about everything. It's the same conversation that you've been having at CSU is – instead of waiting for another blackface incident or another noose to be hung or another Halloween costume that's disparaging to black and brown communities, what are you doing to proactively change the culture on this campus so that those won't keep happening? You know, and that's, that's in one setting, right? But if we, if we bring that same mindset and what are we doing to prevent these injustices from happening in the future? whether it's police brutality or otherwise, how are we actually making sure that this is something that will stick long-term and that it's not just a symbolic action to solve the problem right now? You know, I think the prime example that we're seeing is Black Lives Matter Plaza and just that that Black Lives Matter being painted on the street. It's cool. I'm not going to lie. Like, I like the way it looks and I like the message it sends. There's no additional action coming from cities and states and communities to actually affirm that statement, it's nothing more than a symbol and an empty promise that a lot of us are pretty fed up with at this point. Which makes sense why you would be fed up. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think too, I mean, we're really talking about dismantling the system of white supremacy and that's so ingrained in our country. And I feel like the people who are so strongly reactive against Black Lives Matter or against, you know, abolishing or reforming the police and not to be, I don't want to be accusatory, but I, I think that it's people who really need to take a look at their feelings of not wanting that white supremacist way of living changed. I think the other thing we have to look at or think about and talk about is the way that you know, the prison system is also being used to legally make black and brown people slaves still today in, in this time and space where people are thinking, you know, it's completely gone, <laughs> but how they're benefiting from that. And that's another huge piece. I think that fits into the, the police reform as well. Yeah. And I think that's where it comes back to like, 
our personal contributions because when we talk about police reform a lot of times like that's high level that's something that's not going to happen in an individual conversation that i have with someone that's a policy thing that's a city or state decision or, or national decision that has to be or federal decision that has to be made and so exactly what you just said people have to reconcile how their privilege could be detrimental to someone else and it is really hard to explain white privilege in particular, but every different type of privilege, because people tend to say, like, I'm not doing anything, you know, I'm not actively, you know, fighting against this, I'm just, I'm just living my life. And that's, that, that's exactly what privilege is. It's that you don't have to think about it, Mm -hmm. because it's comfortable, because the norm is what your identity upholds. We have to find a way to break down that mindset because I think the people who, and again, I'm not trying to be accusatory or completely generalized, but the folks who actually, who perpetrate um, acts of white supremacy, I don't believe the vast majority of them are the folks who are touting Confederate flags and, you know, closet members of the KKK. No, I think they're everyday, consider themselves normal, whatever the normal standard is. Mm -hmm. And they just don't understand that passive racism is just as detrimental. And that until you step off of the the path of least resistance, and that's just, that's what's easy. And Mm -hmm. until you actively step off of that and, and start to just question why someone might be saying Black Lives Matter, why someone might be so upset that this is happening, why you going about your everyday life like nothing is happening is feeding into that frustration and into that pain. Mm -hmm. Until people take the time to do that, they're still part of the system of white supremacy. And the more that people start to realize that, the more we'll start to see those changes. And then we can start to get to the Confederate flag folks and the more extremists. But in my mind, the vast majority are folks who don't mean harm, but aren't actively fighting against it either. Yeah, totally. Which was me. And I have a daughter who's half black. And I didn't even realize that I would consider myself an empath. And so I feel things so deeply that they will like literally keep me up at night. And my response to that for so long was just pure avoidance. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, I don't even want to go there because it'll be so upsetting. And even just, just, and that's what has changed in my awareness in the last four months that that is rooted in my privilege and in that system of white supremacy that I had the ability to even do that. It's going to make me cry. I don't want to cry on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how important it is to even allow ourselves to see a different perspective, to get uncomfortable, like you were saying earlier, to not avoid and go with the flow of the comfortable space. Yeah, I think right now, honestly, it takes more effort to avoid the conversation than it does to engage it right now. Mm -hmm. And as long as we continue to use that to our benefit, I think we'll be on the right path. Again, as things start to shift and simmer down, and as people start to look for that normalcy, again, within the pandemic or in this larger crisis summer that we've had, it's going to take a little bit more effort to actively remind ourselves to continue engaging and to continuing to have those conversations when we know the easier route is just to say, ah, well, I don't really want to do that today, or I don't think it's really my place. Mm -hmm. And instead say, you know, what, what can I do? And if it's not my place, who can I find to fill that void and to fill that gap? And how can we continue educating ourselves? All the things we've already talked about, just like, how do we maintain that momentum going forward? and not let it go back to just the easy and comfortable avoidance that a lot of us revert to as kind of the easy way out. Let's kind of move into my questions that I'd like to ask you to to kind of wrap up. I do hope that, you know, maybe at some point I can have you back. We can continue this conversation. I feel like there's so many different trails I want to go down. (laughs) 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 But I would love to know, you know, in whatever area of your life, what has been the most vital to you and your growth? I've been trying to like name this, not just in this setting, but I think it was kind of getting thrown into the fire a little bit. 
I, I think for me, I always go back to Mike Brown. And this is this is going to be kind of about just my identity, like coming into my realization of what blackness means. I was going into my, let me say my junior year of high school and Mike Brown was, was killed in or right next to the neighborhood that my dad grew up in. And so it became real to me kind of in that moment. And so for me, I felt like I no longer had a choice of ignoring who I was. And so from that moment on, I found myself just like, inundating myself with information and when I got to college and actually started to experience some of those those frustrations and the racial incidents and things like that I really felt like that's when I started to be able to articulate it and to start to understand who I was as much frustration and as much of an emotional roller coaster as it has been just like like I said getting thrown into this fire of just like hey you're black figure it out like that has absolutely brought me to this point of now living in that acceptance and living in that place of more pride whereas before it was a little bit more tenuous and it was just kind of like you said that it's it's that thing that's there but may not be really talked about and so yeah I think that's been something that has been absolutely key to just like helping me come to terms with who I am and figuring out my role in everything that I do. Now, walking away from this podcast, what do you want to make sure that people know? I think, like I said earlier, it's a marathon. I keep coming back to that because this work, these conversations, they can be absolutely exhausting. And life continues to go on around us as these things keep happening and as the protests continue. And so I really hope people can understand that we all have to find our way to engage And that what works today may not work next week. We have to just kind of be on our toes and we have to be willing to make those changes within ourselves so that we can continue that movement forward. Because if we allow ourselves to just kind of give up on it, that's when it all falls apart. And that's when we stop making the progress that we need. I'm a strong believer in collective action with individual contribution. And so everyone, I I strongly believe that everyone has to find their place in this and everyone has to truly commit to their role whatever that looks like today whatever that looks like tomorrow next week next year 10 years from now you know Mm -hmm. we all have to commit to this fight until we truly see the transformations that we need I love that I can feel like I need to do all of it you know Mm -hmm. what I mean um that's been kind of a realization for me recently is you know my my specialty area is the mental health area and that that can be my piece and I don't have to be in every (laughs) (laughs) none of us do that's the overwhelm right and I think that's a really beautiful collective action with individual contribution we're gonna mean that (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how can people find you? How they how can they connect with you? I will also put the link to the TED Talk in the show notes so people can be sure to uh, watch that. But if they want to continue a conversation with you or follow you, how can they find you? I would say the easiest way is probably through Instagram. Like my account is private, but if people like send me a message or like have a question or something, I'm a little bit more diligent about responding to those. Beyond that, like, I don't know, I'm not really good at keeping up with social media or anything. So I would say probably Instagram is the best way to find me. How can people find out about, you know, protests or things that are coming up that they can be a part of? Is there a good space for that? Yeah, there's a couple different ones. So in Aurora, There is, uh, these are all on Instagram and they probably have Facebook accounts linked to them as well. But Justice for Elijah McClain is a really good one on Instagram. They usually track just about anything that's going on, both in and outside of Colorado, actually. And then another group that's been really leading the effort more recently, I think, is Denver Party PSL. I want to say Socialist Liberation or Social Liberation. So those are the main two kind of in Colorado and in Denver. And then, of course, Black Lives Matter has chapters all over the country, including Black Lives Matter 5280. I should note, I'm not like officially tied to any of them. I just, you know, those are the ones, that's where I've been getting most of my information. Those are the folks that I've connected with. So yeah, I think those are the main ones that come to mind in terms of like Denver. And then outside of that, I know ACLU is a really good source of information in general. And then Black Lives Matter on social media as well. They're really good about sharing information, including just like educational stuff to learn from. Mm -hmm. So those are, I think, the primary things that I would definitely recommend for people to check out. 
Awesome. Thank you for that. And I'll put links to all of those in the show notes as well. So Janae, you're amazing. You are a powerful force. And I thank you so much for being here for your heart, for your courage. I mean, everything that you're doing and just being here and sharing with all of us, it's really inspiring. And I think you've also given me a lot of hope today in knowing that we do each have the power to incite change. I think that's another memeable moment for sure. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And again, thank you for taking the time. Like I, I think something I think about a lot is just like, as much as I talk, it would just be in a void unless I had different platforms for people to actually listen. So stuff like this is, it's part of that, that power as well. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, my friends, what an awesome interview. We absolutely believe in the power of our stories, and we are so very grateful to our guests who have the courage to speak their truth and share their heart, experiences, and light with all of us. If you want more of the WE podcast, make sure you head over to thewespot.com where you can find all of our episodes as well as the WE Spot blog. The We Spot is your go-to spot for growth, connection, authenticity, and encouragement. You can also find us on social media. Head over to the We Spot Facebook and Instagram pages and get plugged in. You can also find me, Sarah Moneras, on my personal Facebook and Instagram pages as well. If you love the WE podcast, we would be thrilled for you to rate the podcast and write us a review. We want as many people as possible to be lifted up in growth and get connected with our community. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes dropping every single week. We can't wait to see you over on social media. Thank you for being here today. It means a lot to us. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.